Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is writer Simon Hart. Simon is the author of Here We Go, Everton in the 1980s, The Players' Stories. It's a fascinating look at the club during that decade. If you think about Everton in the 80s, understandably you recall their great mid-80s side, which surely would have won the European Cup, probably, in my opinion, more than once, had it not been for the post-Heisel ban. But it's largely overlooked, at least by non-Evertonians, that that great 84-87 era was sandwiched between two periods of significant decline. When Howard Kendall arrived in the summer of 81, Everton had just finished 15th in the old First Division under Kendall's predecessor, Gordon Lee. And the season previous to that, they'd only just stayed up, finishing 19th. Almost certainly, Gordon Lee had been saved, at least temporarily, by the club's run to the FA Cup semi-finals that season. And then there is, of course, the steady decline under Kendall's successor, Colin Harvey, who took over ahead of the 87-88 season after Kendall's move to Bilbao. Players, some easily still in their prime, notably Gary Stevens and Trevor Stephen, moved north of the border to Rangers in search of European football. Skipper Kevin Ratcliffe and Paul Bracewell struggled with injuries that they'd never fully recover from while the talismanic Peter Reid moved on to QPR in the spring of 89 and was never replaced. New players started to come in in waves and the 89 FA Cup final aside never really threatened to win anything. By the time Kendall returned in late 1990, Everton bore a greater similarity to the club he'd first inherited in 81 than the eminent power he'd left behind in 87. Simon interviewed some of the club's best-loved players from that decade, as well as Colin Harvey, Kendall's deputy during the glory days, and ultimately successor, before reverting rather curiously to deputy once again to accommodate Kendall's return. This is Simon Hart. How did the book come about and had you been minded to write it for some time? Yeah, I'd, I'd had these thoughts originally uh, about five years before I, I started working on it. But it, it was 
a conversation with Simon Hughes, who um, is now working for the, the Athletic, who at the time was involved with the Coubertin uh, with James Corbett. Simon had done a couple of Liverpool books with the format of sort of chapter length interviews with a range of players spanning a decade in, in, in his case, Liverpool history. That was the, the thought that we had that I'd do something similar with Everton in the eighties. And, um, this was summer of, of 2015. I guess the concept we came up with was looking back on that decade, but not just focusing on, you know, on that glorious three year spell in the middle of it, but trying to speak to some of the, the people who passed through the club at both ends of the decade too, and trying to get a few of the, maybe the unsung heroes from the era as well. Now looking back, maybe I'll take a different approach. Um, first you haven't seen the film Howard's Way, which is just full on heroes and, and leaves you feeling all rosy. Not too red, of course, just rosy in a kind <laughs> of with a blue hue. But anyway, that was the idea, you know, looking back and getting some of the different voices and a mix of, you know, some of the Everton legends plus players who we'd heard less from over the previous quarter century or so. Well, as you touched on there, it's an interesting decade because you've got that glorious period in the middle, but it's bleak at the start and it's heading that way again at the end. And that, I think, is just as interesting as that middle period. It is one of the great teams. When you set about writing this book, was there anyone that you wanted to speak to who you weren't able to reach? Um, yeah, there, there always is. He does contribute with a foreword, but Peter Reed would have been obviously um, somebody I would have loved to have been able to speak to because of what he meant as really the um, one of the, the real driving forces of that team. Possibly, you could say, even the captain on the pitch. I know Kevin Ratcliffe was a good captain, but in terms of you know being the, um, I guess the the motor of the team. So Peter Reed was one. Trevor Stephen was somebody I tried because I was I was a big fan of his. He was such an elegant footballer, clever, made it look effortless. My dad always spoke about him being like Tom Finney, the way he'd run with his his head up and you know looking around. So those two were definitely two that got away. Yeah. There's a passage in your book, I think, at the start where you write the difference between the two big Merseyside clubs at the time was illustrated in their shirt sponsorships. Liverpool had Hitachi, Everton had the Wirral-based subsidiary of the Danish cooked meats company, Hafnia. But I mean, Hafnia, 35 years on, we, we still remember Hafnia. I mean, it's, if anything, Everton made them. It's, uh, who would have thought when they started sponsoring the club, what was to come, albeit not immediately. Tell us where Everton were at the start of the 80s. Probably a little bit despondent because they'd come, I think, so close a couple of times in the 70s. That 1977 season where they, you know, reached the League Cup final, lost in the second replay, played Liverpool and, um, you know, the FA Cup semi-final and it could so very easily have won 3-2, but for Clive Thomas and a goal Evertonians won't ever forget or stop talking about. And, you know, they'd, they'd had good players. They'd had, I think they'd come close with Gordon Lee. If you were to put that in the modern context of being top three or four, it would be seen as a, as a successful time because they'd be playing Champions League football every season. But they weren't. They were, they hadn't won anything. A decade which had begun with winning the league and with Everton at that point, 
as the club on Merseyside with with more trophies had ended with Liverpool as you know the biggest team in the country with two European Cups to the name and that you know they built a European legacy Liverpool so it was a not not a happy time attendances were beginning to fall and you know by by 83 84 I think Everton reached the low point or the lowest attendances since around the, the World War One, average of nineteen thousand in eighty three eighty four. So things w- w- were not um, were not good, and Gordon Lee lost his job. Um, Howard Kendall arrived in nineteen eighty one, and you know the famous story of the Magnificent Seven arriving, that batch of seven signings who who came in in, in Howard's first summer. And of course, Howard did bring in a magnificent goalkeeper in Neville Southall, but the rest of them, a bit of a mixed bag. It, it would take time and it would take patience and people's patience was tested. But thankfully, you know, Philip Carter, the chairman, kept his faith and, and we all know what happened next. Gordon Lee, I, I didn't know too much about him when I was reading your book. I remember him as Everton manager, but it was a real insight, this book the way the players viewed him, the players that played under him, they viewed him with fondness. But what came across was he was somewhat of an eccentric character. The first two full seasons he had at Everton, they have top four finishes. Now you get Champions League. But the third season, I think he brings in something like eight players. Only John Bailey will survive the Howard Kendall era. They almost get relegated, but they reach the cup semifinals, lose to West Ham. Does that cup run keep him in the job for another year? I'd like to tell you I can answer that definitively, um, but probably because at the time, you know, the FA Cup was such a big deal. Well, as it had been, you know, for most of history uh, up to that point, English football history, um, and to come so close, you know, I think they'd been to a quarterfinal the year before, or would it be the quarterfinal the year after and lost to Man City? But yeah, sorry. West Ham, you know, a second division team and a real bitter pill to swallow. I get the impression Everton used to give their managers around three years to really start making a mark back then. Who'd come in in 77. So you're right. That was the end of his, his third year. And I guess to come so close in the cup might have bought him a bit of time. I heard from some players of that, of that earlier era that he lost Steve Burtonshaw, who was a very popular and respected coach and that didn't help him. Correct me if I'm wrong. Eric Harrison came in. Yeah, he does. Yeah, and I think that was a little bit of a turning point too, which didn't help. It, I guess it's one thing barking at uh, young apprentices and Man United, but barking at uh, senior players, they didn't take too kindly to it. I think we should be grateful to Gordon Lee though, towards the end, for the fact that he brought in a young striker from Dumbarton in Graham Sharp. You know, when you think that. You know, he, he did leave the club with somebody who would go on and become their greatest post-war goal scorer. You know, that was one important uh, foundation stone for, for Howard Kendall subsequently. You begin your book by interviewing, I'm going to say Mike Lyons, because I think you stress in the book he doesn't like Mick. So I'll go with Mike Lyons. And I think you, yeah, you, you write, he is the man who embodied a luckless decade. And, you know, he's in the team for 11 or 12 years. They have various near misses and he leaves just before that successful era kicks in. As a player, a little rugged, perhaps, would he have fitted into that 
mid eighties team style wise. I mean, Kevin Ratcliffe was quite rugged in in his own way. I know he had he had the you know the, the very I mean he had lightning pace which which was a, an important part of his game. Would he have fitted in? I remember going to Mike Lyons' testimonial, but I I didn't see him you know in his prime years. So I, I I don't know if I'm the best qualified person to answer that. I think he would have certainly fitted in socially. You know, he was still going back and, and training with, with the, the players occasionally at Belfield, from what I understand, and he was certainly the, the Bayern Munich knight. He would have been, an, I guess, an important person in terms of the morale side of that, of that dressing room. But, um, yeah, was he better than Ratcliffe? Probably not. They were spoiled for centre-halves at that time, weren't they, Everton? I mean, you had quite a few guys. I mean, even Billy Wright was there for a while. And, of course, Mark Higgins, who was such a highly rated player, you know, he, he was wanted by a large number of clubs before he chose Everton. He was an England youth international. He, I think Bobby Robson told him after he'd finished, you know, he, he's somebody who he'd always liked Higgins and kept an eye out for him. He was the captain, in case we forget that, you know, if it hadn't been for his injury, it would have been him and not Ratcliffe lifting up the FA Cup, you know, that first trophy. So you're right that they, they did have good centre backs at the time. Um, would Mick have got into the team? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, he did, he did give, he did give them, you know, 11, 12 good years. So we'll be glad for that. You mentioned Gordon Lee brought in Graham Sharp, which I think he came from Dumbarton. But there were so many youngsters coming through at that time at Everton. Is Gordon Lee's part in their emergence overlooked? Because it's it's a conveyor belt. It's it's ridiculous talent coming through that three, four years down the line we'll just we'll see how good those guys are. Is his part in that forgotten? I'm trying to think who would have been at the club before Howard arrived. And I'm guessing that the players are the same sort of age as Sharp. Steve McMahon would have been there, wouldn't he? Kevin Richardson, probably. Yes, Gary Stevens. A young Mark Ward was there, but obviously didn't last. Paul Lodge, the um, the midfielder who had a few games early on in Kendall's reign. So yeah, there were good players. Um, I remember Kevin Ratcliffe telling me he thought Paul Lodge in today's football might have had more of a chance because he was a, a technical player, a passer, whereas maybe things were just a bit too frenetic for him. I remember finding an old Liverpool echo where Harry Catterick was quoted as saying he was the best batch of kids since his own his own time in, in the late 60s and that group who, you know, helped Everton win the league in 70. So, yes, he wasn't just Sharp. He was bequeathed by Lee to, uh, to Howard as he came in. Was Howard Kendall the obvious candidate in the summer of 81 to take over? I can only answer from hindsight. I find it interesting looking back and, and seeing just what Howard had done before coming to Everton already, you know, as a young manager. You know, he'd taken Blackburn Rovers out to the third division and to within a whisker of a, of a second straight promotion. He'd shown that he was, you know, I guess the coming man in terms of young English managers. And he was so young, you know, 34 years old when he took the job at Everton. I don't know whether Everton alternate, but they'd had Gordon Lee, who'd been a non-Evertonian, could come in and replace Billy Bingham, who had been an Everton man. So maybe it, it felt like, you know, a logical step. One of the great players of the late 60s, early 70s at the club is already always showing himself to be one of the most talented young coaches in the country. The job's available again. He's, he's sort of one of our own. So bring him back in and thank goodness they did. 
And as you write, by the end of that first season, he's shown how ruthless he is by getting, well, easing Mike Lyons out of the club. And I think by then, Adrian Heath has come in as well. And his association with Howard Kendall went back to their Stoke days. And in your chapter with Adrian Heath, he's telling you how Howard Kendall would always be in his ear at Stoke about what a great club Everton was. And that was the place to be. And he took a while to get going, Adrian Heath, didn't he? Yeah, I remember when when I spoke to Adrian, he he spoke about there was a game where he he'd really struggled, and and Howard sort of turned to him and said, you know, I can't wait forever for you, which you know was I guess a, a nice way of saying it's time to pull your finger out, because the Goodison crowd can be impatient. We see it still now, you know, with uh, with certain players. I don't know if he got booed because I was a little bit too young at the time to to, to take that kind of thing in, but. But, you know, certainly he, he didn't make a great start. He had the pressure of being the, rec- the club's record signing, which for a young player from Stoke was a responsibility and a, and a, and a degree of pressure on him. But he, he, you know, he went on and scored such important goals as the, the goal against, against Oxford in the Milk Cup. And then later that season, the FA Cup semi-final winner against Southampton. In that, uh, well, around 82, 83, David Johnson returns to Everton from Liverpool for a second spell with Everton. Andy King returns in 82. Overall, those returns don't quite work out. At this stage of Kendall's tenure, it seems he, he, he was still very hit and miss with his signings. It's, you know, one's working, two maybe aren't, and you cannot envisage the success that is around the corner it's it's um it, it's, it's a strange one because there were a lot of arrivals weren't there yeah even peter reed who came in if my memory's right towards the end of 82 was seen as a huge gamble you know he'd had so many injury problems i think gordon lee had looked at him but he um he had that terrible injury on was it against everton on a snowy day i think um, it was yeah in the 70s um when I spoke to Colin, he, he said that at one point he turned to Howard and said, look, I don't think this is going to happen with, with Reedy because he, he had struggled. And it's interesting when, when Everton, you know, when, when they came close to a real FA Cup run, a really good FA Cup run in 82, 83, they, they, they knocked Spurs out. You know, Spurs had won the previous two Cups and they beat them in the fifth round. Then they went to Old Trafford and you know, Peter Reed isn't in the team in those games. You've got Kevin Richardson in the midfield. Andy King, who scored one of the goals to knock Spurs out. And I think Andy King had a bit of a purple patch at that point. But, you know, Peter Reid, by the end of that year, would come good. More than one player talks about the significance of the Milk Cup game against Coventry, where they they were losing until late. And Peter Reid came on at half-time and sparked a change. And then they scored two late goals, turned around, started a run in that competition. But, yeah. It's funny how things work out and how certain players' history tells us he was good. You know, he was a success. He was an Everton legend. But you look back at the beginning of what happened when he came to the club and how it was really on in the balance at one point. Whereas other players you've mentioned, it it, it just doesn't happen for some reason with with signings. But, you know, I, I guess that's the way football and life goes. There's a line, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's a line that Patrick Barkley once wrote about Peter Reid, and he said no player in the 80s did more to try and bring Liverpool down than Peter Reid, and I just thought that was a wonderful compliment. And as you're talking about Peter Reid, 
for me, if we go back the last, say, 40, 50 years, and you're looking at players that have transformed a certain club, I would say we can go Dave Mackay at Derby, even though he's not there when they finally win the title in 72, but he did so much to help that club come up and find that belief in themselves. We're looking at maybe Archie Gemmell, Peter Shilton at Forest. Later, we're looking at Cantona at United. In between, I would say Peter Reid and Andy Gray transform that Everton team. The impact those two have. And Andy Gray is only there for 18 months. It's, it's incredible. You'd think the way people talk about Andy Gray and Everton, that he was there for 10 years, such was his impact. It's hard to think of players now who can go and do that in modern football at a club because most of the big clubs have the biggest stars anyway. These are two guys wrecked by injuries who go to a struggling club and, you know, the success is incredible. Yeah, two points. One would be, it's interesting what you say about wrecked by injuries because and I was, I'm trying to think of some a player today who, say, by the age of 26 or 28 would be considered wrecked by injury and then come back. Because I know sports science is so different and a serious injury is so, I wouldn't say, it, it, they appear to be, you know, less serious because of the way that they are treated today. I find, I find the more I've sort of looked into it, the more I agree with Andy Gray, with your, what you said about Andy Gray's impact, rather. I think what's remarkable is, is he did the same with Wolves. He went into Wolves and by the end of his first season there had scored a Wembley winner in the League Cup final in 1980. And then four years later, he's done the same for Everton in an FA Cup final. And, you know, we see that personality, don't we, filling the screen now. And this is a man in his mid-60s. So imagine the, the size of that personality when he was in his late 20s. There's a brilliant clip. I don't know if you've seen it on YouTube of the Everton team coach going to Wembley in 84 for the, the FA Cup final. And I don't know if it's Tony Gubber or Alan Parry that they're there with, with the team or is it Jim Rosenthal, but whoever it is that they're on the bus and, and it's Reed and Gray just, they just take over and the absolute confidence. And you could see how that confidence rubs off on the rest of the players, you know, especially Gray who'd sort of been there and seen there and done it all. Seven years earlier, he'd been your know, double play of the year. I mean, that really came over from Adrian Heath that he saw those two and thought, you know, bloody hell, they, these two will do anything it takes to win. And he rubbed off on them. And that's why, as I mentioned to you at the start of the interview, I, I really wanted to speak to, to Peter Reid. And, you know, with hindsight now, you know, I, I wish I'd spoken to Andy Gray as well, really, because I think that he was the, the absolute pivot of that. And, and it's funny now when you see players, I don't know, James Milner, 35, playing for Liverpool, when you think that Everton sort of, you know, got rid of Gray at the age of 30 to bring Lineker in. And just, I know players wanted to play every week, didn't they? Whereas Howard Kendall must have thought, OK, Lineker's coming in as a main man, so Andy Gray has to be sold, which is a completely different way of thinking to nowadays, which is interesting as well, and I guess just a different era. Do you think that, I mean, and we'll come to it later when Lineker arrives, but do you think Gray was too big a personality for Kendall to entertain remaining at Everton, not playing regularly? You, I mean, you're probably right, because then players simply wanted to play. And it, I don't think it was just for the, you know, the win bonuses, which financially made a difference to their lives, the appearance fees, the win bonuses, but they were accustomed to being in a starting eleven or the man on the bench. 
mean, Adrian Heath, he had itchy feet after 85-86 Lineker's season. And I look back at this and he started 35 games and played 50 in total. And he wasn't satisfied because he wanted to be starting up front every week. Whereas, you know, nowadays that's just that's just standard for a player to be in and out. You'll have 20 minutes, you're going to be rested next weekend. So it is interesting and, and Andy Gray probably, you know, he wouldn't have wanted to play second fiddle to anyone. There is one young major talent who chooses to walk away from the club, and that's Steve McMahon. And I think it's Kevin Ratcliffe in your book who, I think he says Howard just didn't like him. Words to that effect. Do you know what the problem was between the pair of them? I mean, Steve McMahon is still, was still playing in the early Premier League 12, 13 years after leaving Everton. He picked up three titles at Liverpool, a, a major, major talent to not well maybe they did try to hang on to him but but that was a big player to leave it was because evertonians like the the homegrown players that they're probably sometimes too impatient with them but you know he, he was a, somebody who come through and he he played like he'd stepped off you know off, off the gladys street that really sort of strong tigerish streak tigerish if he's on your team a yard dog if he's in a left <laughs> shirt but um yeah i mean kevin ratchet said he and I remember, you know, distinctly, he said, I don't think he liked the family. As in, he didn't think Howard liked the family, which is quite a strong thing to say because Kevin had been quite friendly with the McMahons. But that was the thing with Howard. He, there were certain players he didn't, if he, if he sort of took against them, that was it. I know Pan Nevin has got his own stories of that. But was it about money too? I mean, I've, I've heard McMahon speak about not being offered the terms that he wanted. Everton equally didn't have they went awash with, with money at the time. So by selling him, they were able to bring in Trevor Stephen. Peter Reid, you know, became the, the midfield leader. And then you had Trevor Stephen. I think that, I think that's a decent trade, really. It, even if McMahon was an Evertonian and of course a, a very, very good player. Everton reached the League Cup final in 84, the infamous Alan Hansen handball in the first game at Wembley. They lose the replay, but what do Everton learn from that because they've just gone toe-to-toe with a team that are going to win the you know a treble that year it gave them the belief that they could they could match liverpool if you think that november 82 they lose five nil home to liverpool so the milk cup final would have been 15 months later and in, in that time they developed a group who could go toe-to-toe with liverpool at wembley i think that's what it tells them that they're as good as them it gave them the belief that they were or they could be. And of course it gave fans another another thing to um to put in our little list of um Derby Day grievances with the uh Anson Humble. Something that really fascinates me about that period, Graeme Souness, who was an exceptional player and captain for Liverpool, they they struggled to overcome his loss. Had he stayed, did that Liverpool team have enough to keep Everton at bay or was that Everton team coming through regardless? I think the Everton team, well, I'm, I'm biased and you're asking me to think about a hypothetical that I never thought about because I was just delighted Liverpool were weakened by Sunas' departure. But when you think how close Everton were in 85-86, you know, people sometimes, I think, undervalue how well they played in that season with a load of injuries Peter Reid unavailable to the February you know, there were nine points clear Liverpool after winning the derby in the February so sorry so the short answer to the question is 
I'm completely biased, but yes, I think that even with Sooners, that Everton team, they were there and they were going to compete and they were going to get ahead of Liverpool at some point. Mark Higgins, who you mentioned earlier, it's a strange situation with him because he has to retire. There's a, an unidentified pelvic injury and it's so common with players of that time. I think Paul Bracewell has this ankle injury, which they don't get to the bottom of for, for almost 20 months. and. I spoke to Paul Walsh recently and he was talking about misdiagnosed hernia at, at Liverpool in his early days. And it's just shows how much improvement the medical side of things has made nowadays. Mark Higgins makes a comeback, doesn't he? But he doesn't get his chance to make it with Everton. And in his interview with you in, in that chapter on Mark Higgins, you can, you can see and you can understand that hurt him because he was the captain. He's probably suffered more than anybody during that success and then he's trying to come back he proves he uh, he can come back but maybe not to the standard of before but again it showed a certain hardness about Kendall no I think that there was a hardness about him and maybe that was maybe every successful manager needs that I think Derek Manfield will also tell you about the hardness possibly Kevin Ratcliffe too even I've spoken about this with James Corbett who worked with with Howard on his second autobiography and he thought that one of Howard's weaknesses was when it came to severing ties with the player he wasn't very good at that at that side of it even though he was so good at you know being a player's manager when it came to no longer somebody being your player maybe that that wasn't so easy but yeah Mark Higgins was such um I really enjoyed meeting Mark and interviewing him and he carried for many years I think just a lot of hurt, really, from what might have been. So I'm, I'm really glad he's back you know, involved with the club because um, he, he says that it means a lot to him now. You know, I know obviously now there's no football, there's no people in ground, so he won't be doing his normal jobs. But you know, for him to be there in his club blazer and tie in ordinary times on a match day means a lot because he was a very good player and to have got himself fit after you know his career being written off to have been a testimonial even. And he was fit again, as you say, and he ends up going to Man United and um, playing for them, you know, actually against Everton, ironically, towards the end of that 85-86 season. He he and Adrian Heath both had very um, strong memories of the night in Rotterdam, the Cup Winners' Cup final win, and just how, how upset the pair of them were sat in the main stand, feeling completely dislocated from it. You know, it's not like today where players take their bloody children onto the pitch and, you know, their girlfriends and it, it, it's it's a party in the middle of, of the centre circle. Then it was the the players and and the substitutes and nobody else anywhere near the celebrations. I had no idea that Higgins had actually overcome quite a few hurdles. I mean, he was deaf in one ear. I think he has an operation to try and improve that, and it ends up making matters worse. And he barely plays for a couple of years. Come through under Bingham, so he was around very early on probably maybe the first of the youngsters to come through, but he had already had his fair share of misfortune during his time at Everton. And as you say, just a different era for sports science and for the care of players. You're right, right, he had that operation on his ear, which didn't didn't work out, set him back. I I remember him telling me of all the injections he would have. Something that Neville Southall mentioned to me actually a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about how he'd have countless injections as well. And just to play games, and you know, I guess they took their toll at different times. And for for Mark, 
sadly he was one of the um, the victims of, of of the way it was. The thing that I always found strange about Kevin Ratcliffe, I thought he he was an outstanding player, but he disappeared quietly. And your book gets to the heart of that. And he was on this show a few weeks ago, and I was almost blown away when he said that the bulk of his appearances for Everton came by the age of 28. That's just to, to be effectively finished as, as that force that he was at 28 is, again, just another Everton player from that period who didn't quite have the career maybe that he should have. Yeah, I mean, he, he got an injury around 88, which took away a little bit of his pace. By his own admission in the book, you know, he said he was never the, the same player again. And he was extremely frustrated because he just couldn't find that aspect the piece within his armory that had made him what he was, you know, that, that that speed he had. But it's funny, I've also thought about this, Kevin Richardson, who was one of those unsung, the unsung players of the team, yet was still playing in the Premier League and 10 years later in 95. And really the other players were, I know he was, he was probably a couple of years younger than the others, but apart from him and Neville, they were the, the last two men standing, if, if I'm remembering correctly, in terms of playing top five football. And Ratcliffe, his career did tail off. And when he came back, he just couldn't get that extra bit of pace back. I recall him, him sort of telling me about his frustration when he was he was doing some running at, at Belfield and it felt like he had some extra weight on his back because he just couldn't get, get it back. And it affected the way, you know, what he was as a player with that incredible recovery pace he had so for that reason his career I guess tailed off a little bit and he he went straight from Everton to Cardiff if I remember right I mean he wasn't alone in that you know if you think that these were very young men when Everton was in the peak in the mid 80s it was such a young team and yet if you look at the ones who were still playing at the top say a decade later Paul Bracewell was in Newcastle Neville was still going there as a goalkeeper, of course, at, with Everton. Kevin Richardson, I mean, he was capped for England by Venables in 93, 94 around then. Yeah. Um, his only cap. Um, whereas other players, you know, their careers had long since peaked. I mean, I always think about Adrian Heath. I know he'd had his, his, his injury, um, his ACL, but by early 90s, I mean, he had a, a bit of a, a last hurrah with, with Man City alongside Nal Quinn, but you know, he, he, he wasn't anymore the player he had been. Graham Sharp, you know, a player like Graham Sharp nowadays would still be playing at, at a top level into his, his early thirties. I mean, you look at Cavani, Man United's 34 or 33, but they, they, they just look after themselves in a different way. They are such assets. They have so much money to be gained from staying fit. They're almost like little mini industries, each footballer now. So. It's no wonder that, that, that you know it's just it's just a different. I was going to say a different game. I don't know if game is the right word anymore, but it it's just it's a different beast. They they're not going to go out and get pissed every every Saturday night, are they? Derek Mountfield signed by Kendall from Tranmere in '82, probably one of Kendall's best signings. Prolific centre half in '84, '85. He he's come in for Mark Higgins and made the position his own at one point I think like Adrian Heath before his injury Mountfield was on the cusp of an England call and then injury cost him he's the one player I look at from that 84 to 86 team who I think was especially unlucky to lose his regular place because 
he didn't really get much of a look in after Dave Watson came, did he? No, and um, he found it very hard. He thought that Howard made a very um, harsh judgment about his fitness, and he felt that he could still do the job he had been doing, but um, fell out of favour almost overnight, really. I think he took a lot of satisfaction when he scored against Everton um, on that uh, unhappy afternoon. Bonfire night, 89, when Villa smashed Everton on the big match. So yeah, he he found that hard. He barely put a foot wrong, as you say, since he came in and, and took Mark Higgins' place. Scored all those goals. Possibly played with a cartilage problem. I think he mentioned that in the book. Um, and then suddenly he's he's no longer in the starting eleven, which at the time, as we've you know as we've touched on, if you weren't in the starting eleven, you found it very hard to you know to just stick around and be the you know number four substitute, which meant sitting in the stand, of course. Colin Harvey was promoted to coach in 83-84 and it's his style of play, I think, with the reserves that Kendall adopts for the first team, isn't it? Is that, that, that's part of that turnaround that year that gets Everton moving. Who, who was Kendall's first team coach prior to that? Mick Heaton had been the, um, the first team coach. I think he'd come with, with Howard from Blackburn and, um, Colin had been with the, um, the reserve team. You know, which meant that he'd worked with and brought through that crop of players you've you've already spoken of. You know, Sharp, Stevens, Richardson. So he knew them. They trusted him. They liked him. And after Liverpool beat Everton three 0 at the beginning of November '83, a live match on a Sunday. I remember Colin telling me Howard was really down the day after, and it was at that point that. Howard said, "Would you, you know, would you come and work with me as his first team coach?" And that really, I think that was such an important moment. It certainly helped Graham Sharp, for example, who um, you know had, had had come through under Collins' wing. This tactical tweak that you've you've spoken of, which was basically obviously nowadays it's called pressing. Um, yeah, I think back then it was called pressing too, and it happened. But um, you just didn't have three thousand people writing about it at the time. <laughs> Peter Reid was. That that week where Colin Harvey was promoted to first team coach, Peter Reid came back into the team for the uh, the Coventry Cup game. So the pieces just basically fell into place very quickly. And then Andy Gray joined. But Peter Reid wanted to basically get forward, getting into the face of the opposition midfielders, winning the ball back high up the pitch. So that was that was what they did. And Colin said that he picked that up off, off Don Howe at a, a coach's weekend in, in Lillishaw one, one summer. Which, I mean, I found that a really interesting story, just how these things develop. You know, he picked it up of Don Howe, who was such a respected coach, of course, and it gets put into practice, and it was such an important step. I love looking at the old footage of that team and seeing, you know, the way that they would just they'd sort of go hunting in packs and they'd be, you know, really pressing high up the pitch in the opposition half. And it, it's a little lesson for people that there's not very much that hasn't been done before. Uh, we tend to think we've reinvented the wheel every few years. Just yesterday, I was reading an old uh, Charlie Book and Football Monthly annual. I should get out more, but you know it is lockdown. Um, <laughs> but th- th- you look back at articles on the 1960s, and people are saying much the same that they say now. You know about football's all about showbiz now, and players get too much money, and the game's being spoiled by this and the other. And people were saying the same thing in Charles Bookham's book in the 60s. So. This just comes back to the point that, you know, Everton pressing, you know, Liverpool's gag and pressing was done about 30 years earlier. 
you get the title of the book from Everton's 85 Cup final song. You reference the appearance on Wogan, which I revisited this evening. And uh, there are definitely a couple of guys singing with the Everton players who who strike me as, as what you indeed say in that particular Kevin Richardson chapter, that they weren't actually Everton players. I mean, some players are struggling to mime. I mean, it's 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 a different era, isn't it? It's it's not a great song, but they're 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 running out from the back of the stage. There's Terry Wogan waving a scar, and some of the players, particularly Kevin Richardson, as you say, looking extremely uncomfortable in the front row. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic moment of um, of the time. You know, a time when teams would have cheesy cup final songs, and maybe footballers and football took itself a little bit less seriously and there were, nobody was wondering or worrying about image rights for example but yeah I mean I, I love that clip and I've, I've I've watched it many times uh, and it was nice to look back on that in the book and to find out who those two fellas were <laughs> the two imposters one of whom was Ray Parr who um, was a good friend of Howard's he bought a house on Goodison Road, which before the lockdown, this is a, a venue where, where Evertonians go and meet. And, you know, you can buy a season ticket to go into Ray Parr's house and have a, a pre-match meal or drink. Um, I don't think they play Here We Go on loop, but I'd like to think they might do. And the other person was a friend of Andy Gray's. And, you know, another player told me that, you know, that they basically stopped off uh, before leaving Liverpool at the, the, um, the off license and just bought loads of booze. And, so by the time they get down to London, you know, they're, they're half gone already. So, I mean, I think Graham Sharp, if you look back, he, he was certainly looking worse for work um, by the time they run out into the studio. Um, so no, yeah, a, a brilliant clip, great tracksuits. And, uh, I've still got the record and I still like the record. I know we might disagree on that. It's obviously nostalgia and it's obviously what it meant to me as an Evertonian, but, um, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, I think we can just, agree to disagree still to come on this week's when shorts were short i guess it was a relief but it says so much for him as a man that it says so much about what everton means to him that he you know immediately agreed to come back as as howard's assistant which you know it's it's unthinkable now for think of a manager of a, of a, a top six team now who get sacked and agree to be the number two the next day. Another of the players, again, we've, we, we've mentioned him. And, and in fact, his arrival actually pushes Kevin Richardson out, and that's the arrival of Paul Bracewell. And even watching Bracewell in the early 90s for Sunderland and Newcastle, you could see he was still a hell of a player. Surely, if it wasn't for the injuries, Bracewell goes to one, maybe two World Cups. He was that good. Yeah, I think what Bracewell gave to Everton in, in 85-86, in that run-in from when basically Billy Whitehurst took him out in Newcastle at the beginning of the January, Bracewell was only out for about two or three weeks, came back and then played until the um, until the end of the season and missed the World Cup. But he, he was magnificent. And despite playing with what turned out to be a career-threatening ankle problem, he was my favourite player at that time, I think. Nowadays, he, would he be the, the sort of the deep-sitting midfielder? He probably would be. But I mean, he wasn't a great goal scorer, but he, he could play a pass. I mean, 
his ball to um to Trevor Stephen is is one of the great passes of you know that decade from an Everton point of view in the Sunderland game in in um, the spring of '85 and. It was his ball for Graham Sharp in the Cup semi-final in 86 against Shaffy Wednesday. A sort of little chip ball and Graham Sharp came in with a ter- terrific volley. So he could pass a ball, he, he, he could win a ball. And I think he, he was, um, Colin Harvey spoke about how good he was at, at intercepting, at reading. Um, he just knew when to step in. He'd been with Howard Kendall at Stoke. They knew him. They really liked him. And he, he helped. And it showed, I guess, you build when you're in a strong position. And, after winning the cup in '84, they went and got him in, and that classic midfield just, you know, was there then. That that was um, the midfield everybody remembers as Reed, Bracewell, Stephen, and Sheedy. And he came back, and he had it may be fresher in your mind from having read the book more recently, but I think 50% mobility in one ankle. Yeah. And yeah, he played. You know, he was still playing a, a decade later. Uh, he was still playing top flight football until '96 six time I think which says so much for his his football intelligence that despite being diminished physically he could read a game pick a pass um, knew how to get through football matches um, so yeah what a player I think one of the things that comes through in your book in that run to the 85 European Cup Winners' Cup is that Rotterdam almost felt a bit of an anticlimax after the brilliant performance against Bayern Munich, which must have been peak Everton. And I remember watching that game, I think on Sports Night, the highlights, and it's just the football that you're used to seeing at that time. You watch it now, though, and you think, oh, that was brutal. There was no quarter given from both sides, but no one could have lived with that Everton team that night. They were that good. Yeah, especially now when we have football with our crowds. I'm only really repeating what I've heard from many players, and more than one of them talk about it in the book as being the the, the night of their careers. But it was one of those occasions where players and supporters almost become as one. I hate to say it, but Liverpool-Barcelona a couple of years ago is probably another instance of that. It's incredible to look back at that game and see tackling that went on. You look at Kevin Ratcliffe taking out is it Ludwig Kugel, the um the, the little Bayern winger, with some really you know tasty tasty is a nice way of putting it uh, tackles and the great break in their their centre back's nose. Um, you know you think how how football today at Champions League level is such a micromanaged event. You've got the Bayern Munich substitute sat on what's effectively a kind of gym bench outside the dugout, just in front of the front row of Everton supporters and at one point you know Everton fans were either throwing stuff at them or shouting at them and the buying subs are responding and you know so even between the substitutes and the crowd you know it's, it's it's kicking off and the atmosphere must have been just incredible well it was incredible from anyone who tells you uh, who was there I love the uh, the last goal Trevor Stevens cool finish and the way he runs off which is sort of equally cool really whereas the other goals were more I guess of the um, agricultural variety, you know, long throws, goalkeeper under pressure, and bundle it in. But I wasn't there that night. I'm, I'm afraid to say I do. I do regret that. Anyone who hasn't seen the uh, the clip should should definitely um, take advantage of, of of the clip you've put on this. They lose the cup final to United. They've still had a, an incredible season, uh, the league and the European Cup Winners' Cup. Gary Lineker arrives in the summer of 85. 
Is it Gray's departure that leaves the fans slow to warm to Lineker initially? Yeah, I'm sure it was because he was such a... He, he was somebody who clicked with the fans who had been a catalyst and inspiration. And Lineker was such a different personality. I think you have to separate the Lineker who we know today as a huge media personality with the Lineker who came to Everton from Leicester, who, you know, by the accounts of people who were there at the time, was really quite quiet, didn't train much because he had a pelvic problem, uh, another not correctly diagnosed pelvic problem. And, you know, Andy Gray was, um, you know, throwing himself around penalty boxes, you know, covered in mud and probably blood, either his or somebody else's. Whereas Lineker was, was a goal scorer. When I interviewed him with the book, he said that he felt it was really only at Christmas time when he'd started banging a few goals and that they really started to, to take to him. And no doubt, you know, if he'd stayed more than a year, if you're scoring 40 goals every season, people love you. So he, 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 even if he maybe stayed two seasons and walked away with 80 goals, maybe he would have hindsight or history would, would see him differently. But I guess people just think of him as a player who was there for a year who took the place of a, of a, of a hero, did a very good job, but then he left. Whether, you know, it was his fault or the club's or both faults, probably not the right word either. If circumstances had been different and there was, there was European football, maybe, you know, we'd be talking about a different thing altogether. I think we're both agreed on that that team should have won the double in 85, 86. It, it was the better team. They've gone to Anfield in February. They've won 2-0. They've gone eight points ahead. But you look at the start of the, of the season. It did take them a while to get going. There were a few defeats. And I, I wonder if there was some sort of Heisel ban-related hangover because they weren't going to have that opportunity to prove they were the best team in Europe because the form was patchy, which is, makes it even more remarkable that that win at Anfield actually pulled them eight points clear. They also suffered with injuries. If you look back, they played a derby against Liverpool in September 85, and they were 3-0 down. Um, Steve McMahon scored his third goal for Liverpool, came back to 3-2. Um, I think Ian Marshall was playing in defence that day. I may be wrong, but I think Ian Marshall played. Peter Reid was out for some of that season. And he came back against Spurs in end of January, early February 86 and scored a winning goal. So they had injuries, which I think unsettled them a little bit as well, you know. Undoubtedly, Heisel was, was a huge, huge blow to them. You know, they're World Soccer's European team of the year. I remember Brian Clough's commentary from Rotterdam about how this, you know, this young Everton team would go on and, um, dominate. They were the youngest or one of the youngest English teams to win a European trophy for decades. So, yeah, I'm sure it did hurt them. Obviously, Southall's injury as well at the end of that season. I think he misses 10 or 11 games. Yeah, Southall not being around for the running was a big thing. He was the best goalkeeper at the time in the country. Player of the year the year before. Yeah, and he, he will tell you because it's in his generous nature that it wasn't Bobby Mims' fault that Everton lost the double, but it certainly didn't help. I've said it on a past show here, if Southall had been English from 84 to 1991, he cuts into half of Peter Shilton's caps. There's no doubt about it. And Peter Shilton was a you know one of the all-time greats, but you cannot overstate just 
how exceptional Neville Southall was as a goalkeeper. And even when they won the FA Cup in 95, he seemed to recapture a bit of that form that, that season. Just a, a, a great goalkeeper. Any team would miss him. And I, I was surprised in your book to read that Ferguson and Dalglish had inquired about um, taking him. Yeah, and quite direct inquiries, from what I understood, not through intermediaries. But yeah, no, I mean, he was magnificent. And he, you, you listen to Neville today, and he will talk about how he was utterly focused on being the best and looked at all different sports, you know, looked at gymnastics, boxing, even golfers, how golfers would concentrate through a long, you know, round. So he really thought about it. And of course, he didn't drink. He trained ferociously hard. I mean, he was just a great professional, which is why, on reflection, it's, it's baffling that he was seen as, as an awkward character by some people at the time. I mean, he had high standards. He wasn't typical. And so he ended up being seen as a bit of a, I don't know, an oddball. But that maybe that's the wrong word. He was definitely seen as being somebody who was different, but he was just ultra-professional by what he did. I have the, the good fortune still to I do a, a newspaper column with him today, and he talks an awful lot of sense to about football because he was more of an observer at the time. He wasn't taking part in it, doing concessions. He would just sort of, I think, <laughs> watch people, and he, he didn't he didn't get involved, involved in any clicks. He's got very impressive human qualities, I think. So he's very interesting on that era as a result. What surprised me about Lineker's move to Barcelona was that that move had effectively been set up before the season ended and Kendall had indicated that Everton would sell Lineker. If you look at Liverpool at the time, they refused to let Ian Rush go to uh, Napoli, I think, in 84. They'd still tried to resist his move to Juventus. United had fought off Juventus when they came for Brian Robson. This is the best team in the country at the time, arguably Everton. And yes, it's great money, but they're sitting on a guy that's scoring 40 goals a season and and would have done that again. If you can set aside for one moment the rewards that the player was going to get financially and just maybe wanted to do the best thing by the player, from the team point of view, it wasn't what fans would have wanted to see. There is, a, there is a counter-argument to what you said about Liverpool and Napoli and United and Brian Robson, which is that Liverpool, if I'm right, that summer did agree to sell Rush, albeit he stayed on another year, and United did sell Mark Hughes. So in, in that sense, three of the, the leading strikers in English football that summer did agree to moves abroad a year on from Heysel. So its impact was being felt. However, an ambitious team, an ambitious club, you don't want to sell your best striker, your goal scorer. Um, and I think Lineker, I guess he can play both sides, can't he? he? I've heard him talk about it and say that, you know, if Everton had really wanted him to stay, he would have done. I mean, it was a win-win for him. You stay with a great Everton team or you go and play for Barcelona. Was it a win-win for Everton? In the short term, they got money and they won the league the next season. In the mid to long term, was it a sign that they weren't prepared to keep going, to keep at it, to keep improving? Mm, you know, poor old Colin Harvey, his first summer as Everton manager, when Liverpool brought in Beardsley and uh, Barnes, he brought in Ian Wilson. I think one other player who's, I can't remember whether it was Fred Barber, the goalkeeper, but I know it's, it's a pretty staggeringly uh, disappointing uh, <laughs> contrast. It's certainly Ian Wilson against 
you know, I'm sure he's a, he's a lovely fella, but Ian Wilson versus uh, Peter Beersley and John Barnes, it's not really much of competition there. I think I said that to Kevin Ratcliffe in that I felt it was a hell of a compliment to that great Everton team that Liverpool, that revamped team, was something completely different from any Liverpool team we'd seen before. And, I mean, I do remember watching Ian Wilson and thinking, this isn't an Everton player. I think Sheedy might have been injured at the time and he was playing wide left. Just before we leave the Lineker thing, where do you stand on that theory that Lineker made Everton more one-dimensional? Because I have read some players say that, yes, he did. But as you say in your book, Lineker's unhappy with that. And there's a feeling that Kendall maybe used that to placate Everton fans when when he sold Lineker. By the way, can I just congratulate you for remembering Ian Wilson? Because I don't think many people will have done. I mean, with Lineker... I'm reluctant to make a black and white judgment because undoubtedly the style became more direct and a team who'd been absolutely a team, more than a team really, you know, a band of brothers who all played for each other. Lineker was, you know, a selfish goal scorer. That would bring about a shift in the dynamic. And yes, when he left, they became probably more of that team again. And they really had to dig deep as a group in 86-87 with the injuries and with these big part players coming in like Langley and Neil Adams. I'm going to sit on defence. I just think that um, there's two sides to the, the story and there's probably a bit of truth on both of those sides. By the time Kendall leaves in 87, Everton have won the title again despite that ridiculous injury crisis of 86-87. Just incredible that they managed to win the league when so many of their regulars were out for sustained periods. I think during that season, the likes of Ian Snowden, who I remember Jimmy Greaves, because Liverpool had been in for him at the time, and Ian Snowden signed for Everton and Jimmy Greaves said that was a real statement by that that indicated Everton were now the established as the power in the land. Wayne Clark arrived as well. Two good additions to the squad. So the squad is in a healthy state when Kendall leaves. I had forgotten until I, I read it in Here We Go that Kendall was actually poised to take the Barcelona job in 86 himself. So at that point, Philip Carter, I think, sounds out Colin Harvey to be manager because Colin Harvey doesn't want to uproot his young family to go with Kendall. 87, 88, uh, Peter Reid becomes player coach. Did that work? This is Peter Reid's sort of uh, his, uh, his dyed hair days, <laughs> if I remember right, when he, Everton's... The Umbro kits become, become a little bit faded because they used to wear the same bloody kits, you know, month after month after month. But yet, Peter Reed's hair has, you know, <laughs> suddenly become extremely, uh, you know, jet black. And you know, I, I remember if he get a few, a bit of stick from from the Goodison crowd towards the end. This is a slight digression from you asking whether he worked as a player coach because I don't think that would be why Colin Harvey's reign went the way it did in terms of Peter Reed's impact. The problems he had were, were were other problems, which I don't know whether we'll come to that now, but you know, the fact that you went from a group of players who loved each other and were so close and tight to a, a divided dressing room. And for Colin, that was so difficult. He, he wasn't able to uh, fix it. Did Colin Harvey take the job because he wanted the job or was he just a loyal Evertonian and he felt continuity was the best chance the club had of continuing that success? 
Yeah, I think he took the job because he was an Everton man and Everton was his club and he wanted to do whatever he could to to help them and they, the club wanted him to do the job. So, you know, why would he think twice? This, for me, is the most fascinating part of the book. Yeah. The, the, the decline of the team, but also what you've touched on there, the divide, the divisions between that, the, the, the Kendall's players and Colin Harvey's players. There's a big splurge of money in 88, 89. Tony Cotty, Pat Nevin, Neil McDonald, Stuart McCall, decent players, but none of those players would have got anywhere near Kendall's best team. And you talk about these well-documented divisions and reminded me of something I'd just completely forgotten, which I think ended up on the front pages 30 years ago at a time when that just rarely happened in football. And that's the infamous fight between Kevin Sheedy and the volatile Martin Keown. And I read so many books for this show. And every time it's one of Martin Keown's former clubs, and I like Martin Keown as a pundit, he he seems to be a really interesting guy, but I've yet to read a book where his former teammates from that early part of his career have anything positive to say about him. And so there's a bust up between Sheedy and Martin Keown. And I think you, you've interviewed Pat Nevin for the book. And there's a funny thing where Colin Harvey's got the players together. And I think he says there are two clicks in this dressing room. Let me see if I got this right. There's you guys. There's you guys, Owen. There's Pat as well. Pat Nevin tells you that Colin Harvey was making the right decisions, not just getting the best out of those players. Do you feel that it was the right players that had come in, though? No. The recruitment was a problem. Maybe we've touched on the fact that Colin's first summer, the recruitment was minimal, to say the least. And yet they went to the, the opposite extreme the next summer by bringing in you know, the four players you've you've mentioned. Cotty had, you know, that remarkable debut, a hat-trick against Newcastle on the opening day. Pat Nevin told me that he, he felt brilliant when he started at Everton. He had that, you know, the, the opening day. But within a month, he'd done his, um, his cruciate ligament, you know, which at the time was a big injury to come back from. Paul Power told me that when Neil McDonald arrived, his first thought was, you know what, I wish, I wish Colin had asked me about him. Because he said that whenever he played Neil McDonald, he always fancied his chances against him. Because defensively, he just didn't rate him. He might have been, you know, a half decent attacking fullback, but at a time when a fullback had the first job of being a defender, Paul Power just thought he he wasn't particularly good at that. So he was surprised when Paul, by this point, you know, on the coaching staff, was surprised when uh, when McDonald turned up. And McCall was a wholehearted player with energy. Who had a good career, you know, he went on and won trophies with Rangers. He wasn't Peter Reid, though, was he? And he wasn't Paul Bracewell. And socially, of course, was the, as you've said, with the, um, the Keown and Sheedy incident, you had the problem of the fact that new players just weren't really rated. They were, in some cases, Cotty's case, they were getting paid lots of money and they just didn't mix socially with them. So you had this, Older group of players who didn't like the younger lads and the younger lads who must have found it very hard to settle in a club where clearly they are regarded by <laughs> by the senior players as not being quite up to it. You've got also Gary Stevens and Trevor Stephen had left. Well, they're not even in their mid-twenties yet, perhaps. And very unusual that for the best team in the country to lose players so young. 
it's interesting. You mentioned when Kendall left in 87, he was still only 40. Harvey was only two years older and they were both so young. And Harvey makes the point to you that Kendall's success came early to him as a manager and there's a gradual dropping off. And also, and I think I found this the most interesting bit in the book. And I, I thought it was rather poignant. Harvey makes the point that he and Kendall were by then, even though Kendall had only been away for three years, that they were increasingly diverging characters. Harvey was more serious, self-contained. But Kendall, when he comes back in 1990, it almost comes across as if Kendall was needy a second time around from what Colin Harvey's saying, that Kendall needed to be around people. Well, so much of his management seems to have been about um, social side. You know, you speak to people like um, even Don Hutchison, you know, who worked with him at Sheffield United and then Howard brought him to Everton in uh, 97, 98. He loved Howard for the, the way he He'd let players get away with things off the pitch. He'd give them a little bit of a rope or leeway. I mean, Howard, he made Duncan Ferguson captain and Duncan, Duncan loved him. So Howard loved, I guess, the roguish type. Whereas by the early nineties, the game is changing a little bit. And, um, well, if we look at the example of Pat Nevin, you know, who wasn't a drinker, who didn't feel he was being trained hard enough even at Everton. So that, that, that approach of Howard's was perhaps becoming a little bit out of sync with the the way things were, were moving and for you know for players not just Pat Nevin I mean Andy Hinchcliffe who was a more serious type Gary Speed later on it wasn't a, a good move for him to return and like yourself it, it is striking how young they were for me a real, a real killer blow was, was when Trevor Stephen left in '89 he moved into the middle of midfield and you know he's such a classy footballer. He'd grown in experience. He was intelligent. He was an England player. In, in that cup final, which was his last appearance against Liverpool, where Liverpool won 3-2, a fan actually ran onto the pitch and I think wanted to have a go at Trevor Stephen and Pav House stepped over and uh, directed him off the pitch. No, that was a polite word. No, Pat. But yeah, it was a real blow to lose him and suddenly, you know, you have McCall in there instead and it's just not the same. It's easy to draw a comparison with now when, when a team has success, it's very hard to stop being successful in a way now because you know what I mean? You have the, the Champions League money gives you that extra cushion really and the extra impetus. It's harder to go from success to nowhere quite so swiftly, I think. Now we have these, this almost self-perpetuating elite with, with the Champions League money and I know they want even more now in a closed shop, but it's interesting seeing how the game's changed. Just on what you've said there, if you look at, say, the great teams of our childhood, that period from 1970 to 1990, we we saw some brilliant teams, successful teams. You saw Forest, Villa, Ipswich, Everton all had their brilliant periods. But really, it was only maybe Leeds and Liverpool who managed to rebuild successfully and, and, and sustain that period of success. And that Everton team, if I'm only living half my life now, I still expect when I'm at the end to look back at that Everton team and to say, well, that was one of the best English teams I, I saw. I mean, just brilliant. But looking back, it was just such a brief period of success. When Colin Harvey is finally sacked in late 1990, he comes across in your book as being partly relieved by that. Funnily enough, I spoke to, to Neville Southall about this two weeks ago. He remembers um, 
going up to have chats with, with Colin in his office at Belfield and seeing the sort of the hurt on his face because he, he was so he so much wanted Everton to do well. Not for himself or his career, but just because Everton was his team. And you know, one of Colin's daughters was travelling to every away game, so he 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 would have had no escape from that. You know, his family were Evertonians, he had it in his home. His his daughter would have been coming back from games, probably, you know, downcast, uh, just as Colin came back. It, it must have been a release. Paul Powers speaks in the book about Colin was, was in tears and having so wanted to do well and had the frustration of it not working out. I, I guess it was a relief, but it says so much for him as a man that it says so much about what Everton means to him that he, you know, he, he immediately agreed to come back as, as Howard's assistant, which, you know, it, it's, it's unthinkable now for, think of a manager of a, of a, a top six team now who, get sacked and agree to be the number two the next day. It seemed that Harvey regretted it, though, because he, looking back, he felt that they were different characters by then, really. It just seemed that, looking back, he felt that he made a mistake in taking that number two position. Yeah, I think he did. He regretted going back, and it was a mistake for Howard, too, to go back. If you speak to people from Manchester City um, at the time, you know, Howard was was doing very well there. And people like David White, I mean, I've heard him say how much he loved playing for Howard. Um, so he's building something with the help of some of, you know, his former Everton players like, you know, Peter Reid and Adrian Heath and Alan Harper. You know, you could look back and think it wasn't just a mistake for Colin, but it was a mistake for Howard too and they should have just looked for somebody different. What was Howard's quote? City was um, a love affair, but Everton's the marriage so he couldn't resist finally there is another again striking passage in your book and it's where kevin ratcliffe reveals that he told kendall on his return that the decline had just it just gone too far that it wasn't reversible you don't really want to hear that from your captain if you're the manager do you i mean you have to be a very strong character for that not to unsettle you i think that howard must have must have had an inkling you know because he he, he knew so many people still at the club, but this is somebody who'd been so successful and he was doing well as City. And I guess he wouldn't have doubted himself. He would have had the belief that he could go in and do it again. And you look at some of his signings, which, you know, Mo Johnson, you can look back and think he was trying to get an Andy Gray type in, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a lad, um, somebody who'd had a history, somebody who, who, you know, done well in the past. And yet that, that kind of player, it didn't work out. So it, it's interesting, the signings, where he, he tries to put pieces into a jigsaw, which first time round fitted, and second time it just didn't work. Thank you for your time, Simon. Much appreciated. Tell us where people can find your work. My Everton book, Here We Go, is on, uh, is on Amazon. I won't mention good bookshops because I don't know if they're going to be open <laughs> for a while, but um, it's certainly there on Amazon, as is... Um, a book I wrote about the 1990 World Cup called World in Motion. And I also contribute quite regularly to the iPaper. So you can check out Big Neville Southall's column there every month as well. Thank you to Simon Hart. You can also follow Simon on Twitter at Simon22PH. That's the number 22. And if I can remember my phonetic alphabet, Papa Hotel. 
The show links will include YouTube clips of moments mentioned during the interview, as well as a link to Simon's book, Here We Go, Everton in the 1980s, The Player's Stories, which is published by the Coubertin. Their website is thecoubertin.co.uk. Episode 12 out next Friday. The show's focus moves away from the northwest of England next week. Appreciate you guys listening, and I say it every week. If you do enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to it on whichever platform you download it from, and share and retweet, repost, etc. All social media links. It really does help small shows like mine, and I can't overstate how important a decent review is on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. This is a one-man operation competing against far bigger shows, and it's a show that is currently taking up the bulk of my time. I don't have the resources of those bigger shows. Advertising isn't an option when, at the moment, the show is leaking money like one of those old First Division clubs in the early 80s, you know, who overspent on rebuilding a stand, and then they had to start selling all their top players to pay their debts. That's where the show is right now. Sometimes I'm lucky and the publishers get a copy of their books out to me. Sometimes I'm less lucky and have to buy the books and associated research materials in order to do the necessary homework. So if you do enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. Those increase the show's visibility in the Apple Podcast Store. And that ensures that the show reaches an audience that it's currently not reaching and helps me to keep the show going. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. Appreciate your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 Synth Pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.